well, you know, the Warby Parker guys had the thing in GQ, and if we just get a thing in GQ, we're going to be the ones that make it. And the Dollar Shave Club guys, well, they had that video, and their video went viral, and that's what made the company. That is not how it works at all. It is years of hard work. It is smart people doing smart work. It is by no means ever just one thing that builds a, a brand. It just is impossible. It doesn't doesn't work like that. And if you find someone that has done that, I would love to meet them because I, I, I've never met anybody that didn't agree with the sentiment that it's actually much harder. That's Matt Scanlon. He's the co-founder and CEO of Natum. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. You never know what can happen when you leave the comforts of home and embark on a journey. That's the beauty of travel. It can change your life in ways you could never have imagined when you packed your passport. For my guest today, a trip to a remote region of Mongolia became the inspiration for an even bigger adventure, starting a business. Back in 2015, Matt Scanlon and his friend and now business partner, Diedrich Reismus, traveled into Mongolia's Gobi Desert with $2.5 million of cash packed in plastic bags. Their mission? To purchase 40 tons of cashmere. They realized that by partnering directly with Mongolia's herding communities, they could secure the world's finest materials at a fair price and then pass along those savings to consumers. The idea was the inspiration for a company called Natum, which responsibly sources and produces luxury knitwear while preserving the nomadic lifestyle in Mongolia. Matt is a graduate of NYU and lives in New York City. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, Matt Scanlon. Let me start uh, with the same question I ask of every guest. Uh, everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes. So what turns you into a FOMO sapiens? Uh, probably Instagram, to be honest with you. I uh, actually like funding news around companies in my category uh, on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that and and good press. And if uh, my PR firm are here, they know. Like if we have a meeting, I'm already asking for the things that their other companies are getting. Um so, yeah, I mean, just the basic stuff, I guess. All right. So let's talk about Natum. So for the uninitiated, what is Natum? Love that question. Um, well, we're an e-commerce uh, driven clothing brand is the way I've learned to position it. But really at our core, um, you know, we started the business because we had a, a mission, like a story I wanted to tell people about how to um, – support communities in Mongolia, like super abstract and random. And, and really uh, what it's evolved into is uh, sharing a vision around equality. And I know how broad that then becomes, but um, we sell sweaters and in return, we support these communities in uh, Mongolia who we get the material from. But the way the analogy I use is like, imagine you had a string and you pulled the middle of the string down, the two ends would touch, right? And so, um, connecting the end user to the source of where it came from and in the process celebrating 
the equality of that situation, the equalizing-ness, basically, of um, providing transparency and uh, process to things that never had it before. Mongolia is a major source of cashmere for the world. What percentage of cashmere does, does Mongolia produce? So close to 40%. Which is incredible because Mongolia is a nation of roughly 3 million people. About 3 million people, It's yeah. one of the least densely populated in the world. It may be the least densely populated. And so you have this country that is very far from here, not easy to get to, yeah. produces this tremendous amount of cashmere. And New York building a bridge, a virtual bridge, I guess, or a physical bridge between there and here to connect consumers to, to a product that I guess, you know, we think about it 10, 20 years ago, cashmere was something that was seen as unattainable to the average person. You look back thousands of years and it was, uh, it was like only for royal royalty, right? It was like this super rare uh, material that only, that represented royalty around the world. Um, and I think over the past 20 to 30 years, it started to shift as uh, Mongolia, one, became a capitalist country. And so the amount of animals in the country um, exploded and uh, we saw prices go down and it started to get distributed a little bit more widely. Also, the cost of manufacturing came down. And so more people could kind of access it. My opinion is less people were actually accessing what was initially very valuable about cashmere and um, in turn destroying the environment. So there's a whole underbelly to this conversation around cashmere that um, – is becoming a much larger topic that because there's so many goats now and the cost is lower than it used to be, um, that that overpopulation of goats is destroying our environment, creating right. something called desertification, right? So uh, goats are terrible for the environment and their hooves will come and dig up the earth and then they eat everything. And so it creates topsoil. And in Mongolia, they have something called the windy season where topsoil gets kind of blown away. And what's left is desert conditions and that's called desertification it can really be managed with just smart grasslands management but that doesn't exist um so this is a, a global crisis actually major climate shifts in the middle of central asia impact our climate in the united states our business is set up to undo this problem by still offering low cost cashmere just better quality by removing middlemen asking herders to have less goats paying them more money for it but then distributing directly to the customer Fascinating. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you become a, a man who's impassioned about uh, cashmere and about working with farmers in Mongolia? Yeah, so um, I was originally going to go traveling around Asia, and I was going to go to Mongolia, Beijing, Shanghai, and then Southeast Asia. And we had this whole trip planned, Diedrich and I. Diedrich um, goes by Deej. Um, He's co your co-founder. Yeah, my co-founder. But yeah. at the time, he was a ex-college roommate of mine and he was studying abroad and um we had this trip planned we end up in uh, mongolia first stop and you've been there you know it's uh can can be overwhelming with how different it is right like it's now less so but when we first were there untouched in a lot of ways by what we would consider like western civilization and uh we were enticed uh to go on a trip out to the countryside because that's where nomadic herders live so three million people in mongolia half of them are nomadic they don't own homes they don't own land they subsist uh, off of animal husbandry they raise uh goats but other livestock as well and sell what comes off of those animals uh, meat fiber etc and we wanted to go experience that right we'd seen pictures of it in national geographic it was uh, going to be an adventure 
And uh, one thing led to another, and we were taken out into the middle of the countryside. We thought we were going on a day trip, so we thought we were basically going in a circle and the end of the day coming back to the city, so we didn't bring any clothing or any food. And we ended up driving this 20-hour, 22-hour trip really into the middle of nowhere. You know how remote Mongolia gets? Yes. This is like one of the most remote places in the world. And the guys that took us there uh, tell us once we're there the next day that they were planning this trip for a really long time and they were going to stay here for a month. So they graciously invited us to stay with them, which when you think about it, like, yeah, you could be like, that's crazy. Why would they do that? But at the same time, no questions asked. Stay with us for a month. We'll take care of you, feed you, whatever. Um, really eye-opening Get experience. ready for a lot of goat meat and fermented mare's milk, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I started to stop thinking about the things that were different about us, right? Oh, they herd goats. I used to work on Wall Street. Uh, they eat goat. I eat cheeseburgers. Like, I stopped thinking about that and started thinking about our similarities and how we were different. And it was a fairly profound understanding of, like, we're the same. There's no difference here. When these people cry, they're sad. When they laugh, they're happy. Um, they're experiencing the human condition, relatively speaking, the same way I have my entire life and everybody on planet Earth does. Um, and so I just had that moment of, like, we're all the same. Like, let's stop talking about what makes us different and start thinking about what makes us the same. And wanted to find a platform with which I could share that message. How could I show people that it doesn't matter where you're from, what you do? Essentially, we're all, and at the core, a part of the same species, right? That, like, that understanding, and I love thinking about this kind of stuff, but, like, at a biological level is what has transformed our species over thousands of years, the fact that we build culture and society and groups. Um, and so I uh, left and decided uh, with Diedrich to start a nonprofit. The nonprofit was going to essentially be a platform where we could continue to tell the story. Here, these, here's these people. Sounds very foreign. Sounds like a different part of the world. They're the same as us, actually. And here's how there's look at me. Look at these pictures of me with them giving me a noogie. Like, this is not different. And we need to start thinking about people as all in this, all the same. Um, so we start the nonprofit. When we get, we overdo it, we overcomplicate it, like we did a lot of things early on. What we failed to understand at that time was that the, uh, so uh, these herders, they herd goats, they sell the fiber of those goats. There are people who arrive and buy that material. Um, we failed to understand that those middlemen that were buying the material were keeping prices down and put and selling the material for much more money. So imagine you're a herder and I'm a trader. You have goats. Uh, if the goats are healthier and produce a more valuable fiber, I'm not going to pay more for them. I want right. my price. I've agreed right. upon selling price already in the city. So I buy for the lowest price I can. You don't have access to information or technology. You don't have any leverage to negotiate against me. I go for the lowest price possible. Uh, that's not an equitable circumstance. That is not, uh, one, how we would plan to do business, nor is that um, a great way of uh, sharing a message of equality. So we stepped in to disintermediate that transaction, become traders ourselves, in the process increase your price for material but not resell it. So we would play at a lower price if we control the material than the rest of the commodity market, and that's how Nottam started. And once we started realizing we were going to build a brand, um, that became our platform to share this really simple message of let's connect people. That's it.
we try not to overcomplicate things now, uh, even though we did for a really long time. Um, I have to imagine, I mean, as you built the company, I have to imagine that lots of people told you no. Why are you going to fail? For example, oh, it's a commodity. It's a, it's a, right? I, I'm yeah. sure that was like, that's point number one. And then you have people who say, maybe you talk to different investors, which I, I know you've raised capital. So you start talking to investors. And some people will say to your story, that's amazing. I believe in your vision and I want to be there. Other mm -hmm. people will say, I don't really care. All I care about is that you make me three times my money in five years or whatever that is. I'm sure you saw that all the time. Constantly. How do you... Um, how do you, when you're starting a business, an industry you haven't worked in, um, with a very complex sort of set of interactions, you have a business with, you're dealing with nomadic farmers in Mongolia, for Pete's sake, how do you have the courage to be decisive about the things that you're doing? Um, I think it's a healthy blend of stupidity. Um, like, I one time saw... This like way of describing an entrepreneur is like uh, you have to be like optimistic to the point that you're basically insane. That like mm. when all the normal things say this isn't gonna work, you still have to somehow believe that it's gonna work. Um, I can't tell you how many times I was the only person in the room that, despite all the writing on the wall and and the circumstance, believed that it was gonna happen. That I could that I could do it. So it's like this blind not justified in any way whatsoever confidence and and optimism a bit of stupidity right like if i had actually known the consequences of the things i was doing when i was doing them i wouldn't have done them um like if if you came to me if you were me right now you came to me and be like you're an idiot and you're crazy and that there's no reason that should work um so it's like a lot of that telling yourself over and over again you can do it um there were so many times in the process of building the company where i was just like i can't do it like I'm, I'm breaking down i can't do it and i would have that put it in a box move it to the side and keep on going it's an interesting question because a lot of times you hear the advice for entre entrepreneurs that say listen if you want to be an entrepreneur in xyz industry Go work in that industry, build up a base of experience, mm -hmm. and then you can come and attack it and your chance of success will be high. Now, there is a countercurrent, which I've heard, I, I've, that's, listen, okay, sometimes in order to truly disrupt an industry, you need a pure outsider. And I would say that that definitely does happen, but the chances of succeeding in, in that scenario with the pure outsider are much lower. Mm -hmm. Although if you can do it, you know, you're coming at it from a completely different right. side. So you potentially the value creation is much higher. Agreed. I don't know. What do you think about that? How do you see that, that trade off? I agree. Uh, I, I agree with the thought process. I think um, there's a lot we looked at very differently. And then there were things that we just needed to do the way they were supposed to be done, mm -hmm. right? Like um, merchandising for product pretty much needs to happen the way merchandising's always happened. Inventory planning needs to happen the way inventory plans have been bought. Buy, like the things that are traditional to our category of buying product mm -hmm. and selling product, you just need to know how to do. Yes. Um, my feeling was I'm actually only good at a couple of things, like one or two things. I just need to convince people that are smarter than me and better than me to do everything else so i need to manufacture the tools to be able to do that right to convince people i need to um i need to raise the money to go pay people who i then convince to do that um it was a, a process uh, and i kind of had to take it step by step um 
as I invest a little bit on my own now, and um, I normally find value in entrepreneurs who have this set of experiences that I never had. Like the learning curve was really, really steep for a very long time for me. Um, but you know, there's something to be said in terms of in the value of a company being driven by somebody who will stop at nothing to make it work, even if the odds suggest it shouldn't and their education and their background also suggest that it's in, in, impossible. Um, that is a really, really valuable asset. Then when mixed with the right amount of capital and the right people can be, be extremely, uh, an extremely valuable uh, venture. And I think, you know, a lot of ways that's kind of what Nottam was. I just, you know, I look back over the years, I'm like, I made so many stupid mistakes because not only did I not know but I wouldn't listen to anybody, even if they told me early on. So, like, I was the right mix of, like, stupid and probably arrogant that it just, I don't know, fostered probably doing it the hard way. I, I did it the hard way, for sure. Well, you had early on, so I remember this. And what year did you make this video? Uh, we made our first, like, brand video in 2017. 2017. Okay, 2017. I go on Facebook. And somebody had sent me a video about Mongolia. And I've been to Mongolia a couple times. I love Mongolia. Um, and uh, I saw this video about these two guys who are from New York that had worked in finance that go to Mongolia and brings $2.5 million, I believe, of cash with them or something crazy like that. And I remember thinking to myself, this was the coolest thing probably sort of origin story of a company I'd ever seen. Then I thought to myself, like, why didn't, why didn't I do this? And I felt all the FOMO. And then I thought to myself, what a brilliant idea it was. And then I looked at how many views you got and you were in the millions. And I thought to myself, like, this is, these guys have captured something extraordinary, whatever, they've done something really magical to create a beautiful, and by the way, you can go find this video online um, and we'll tell you at the end where to find it because it's really worth a, worth a watch. It's beautifully done. And I just remember being so impressed and it just seemed to me so fresh and such a new way of promoting a brand. But at the same time, uh, I know that these things don't, there is no such thing as viral videos just happening. I mean, unless you're, you have a cat no. that is really extraordinarily unusual um, these things happen because of planning. And so I'd love to hear, number one, how, why you decided to go about introducing the brand in that way because few brands have succeeded doing that. And then how did you manage to create the virality around the, around the video to, to tell the story of your brand? So I, I always felt um, that my story, the story of Nottam was really unique, right? And that it... Um, it was a personal story, and so I always saw the way that people um, wanted to retell it, wanted to evangelize it, wanted to like be part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and my problem was that I couldn't sit in front of every single person and tell them the story. It just doesn't make sense. And for a long time, I didn't feel comfortable uh, putting it in any sort of video format because I, I didn't really know what it was yet. Like I, it was my experience, it was my story, but I didn't. I just didn't understand it. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you see the viral videos that blow up a company. And, yeah, maybe there's millions of views on this video, but I don't, I, I haven't seen a direct correlation between the video and it blowing up our company. That's amazing. The company has grown because we've hired amazing people that know how to do what they do really, really well. Yeah. The video is the icing on the cake. The video is like, oh, yeah, and by the way, 
here it is in a really digestible, easy format. But if I didn't have the right digital marketers putting it in front of you at the right time, if I didn't have the right content producers creating consistency around our brand always, if we didn't have uh, the right operations people getting the product there in time and the customers, like all those pieces, if they don't work perfectly, it does not matter if your video is the coolest thing in the world. It's all about the people. The best investments I've made over and over and over again, and I would do this every single time, is invest in people. Um, I wish I had done that sooner. I wish I, God, I, <laughs> I look back, I just wish there was so much I could have listened to, but people are the best investments. Um, the video for me was a, a special moment when we launched it because I was very close in terms of writing the script and, and overseeing the production of it. We did hire great people to do the edit. Editing is like everything in yes. video production, by the way. Like, camera's a camera. Get someone that knows how to work it. You need a really good editor who knows how to put those pieces together to tell a story really well. Good news is our story was our story. It, didn't, it wasn't, like, contrived. I didn't, like, I didn't need someone to, like, write it for me. Um, so... Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it flew kind of, f it would flow out of us very naturally. And it did at that time. Um, I, again, love thinking about kind of the psychological, biological piece of how human beings attach themselves to brands and brand values. And I think probably that video touches on some sort of science there, if I had to guess, right? Like, maybe, I don't think it's FOMO necessarily, but I think it's, um, kind of like this endearing factor of like wanting to be part of something that somebody else is working really hard for um but i don't i don't know we've we've you know i definitely always point to that and think it's um you know one of the best things i've ever done when i saw that video i thought to myself like this is going to drive a crazy amount of sales their website's going to crash they're going to be national figures i mean i <laughs> i remember i was just i i yeah. watched it like three times um but what you just said something a minute ago that I think is really interesting, which is that a lot of times people think, oh, I just get that one social media mention from that celebrity. I just get that one viral video. I get, you know, whatever it is, that TV appearance. And I, and I remember I've seen this with all my friends and, and things that I've worked on. It's not it's never just one thing. It never there can be maybe, a, a, you know, there are stories. We could come up with a story about somebody who goes viral out of the blue. But the reality is behind the scenes, they had a plan. And in fact, nothing is as easy as it looks. And so the fact that that was your experience is, is it's, you know, it's good to know that that gravity applies to all of us. It's the truth. I mean, I used to think the same thing. Yeah. I was like, well, you know, the Warby Parker guys had that thing in GQ. And if we just get a thing in GQ, we're going to be the ones that make it. And the Dollar Shave Club guys, well, they had that video and their video went viral. And that's what made the company. That is not how it works at all. It is years of hard work. It is smart people doing smart work. It is by no means ever just one thing that builds a, a brand it just is impossible it doesn't doesn't work like that and if you find someone that has done that i would love to meet them because i i i've never met anybody that didn't agree with the sentiment that it's actually much harder and when you hear about story you know the story of a company oh two years hundreds of millions no friggin way the two yeah. people that or the people that are behind that company uh we're doing it for years before that. Like there's, it just the world doesn't work like that. We like to sens sensationalize. We like to romanticize this uh, entrepreneur, like fast growth thing. Nothing uh, can replace, I think, hard work, um, little luck, a lot of good timing, right? Like, if Nottam had started ten years ago, no one cares, right? Sustainability. 
whatever. Just like give us a good product or what, right? Like, so I'm pretty uh, pragmatic in that regard. And I think if we just keep our head down and keep on looking straight ahead when we need to, uh, stay focused, we'll we'll be okay. Let's not get distracted by all this other stuff because this is the first thing we spoke about. You were like, what what do you get FOMO from? It's like, what distracts you basically? What are right. the things that distract you? That's it, right? Like when I'm worried about like, oh, what's this company, this company doing? Because I read that article and that thing. Like, come on. I've been in those articles before and I know that it's different than that. So there's, why am I... I'll work with other entrepreneurs now. And they're like, well, I'm really down. This company's launching. It's in my category and it's doing this thing. And I'm like, do you really know? Have you spoken to their founders? Have you spoken to people working at the company? Do you know anything for real? Because if not, shut up and just go back to work because this doesn't matter. I promise you. And I, you know, more often than not, I have to remind myself of that. But that's what I think the reality of all of this is. It's so true. I Even sound like such a <laughs> no, no. I, I think what you're saying, if I can can sort of tell you what I'm hearing, is. Uh, that there are a lot of messages that are coming at us all the time. And it could mm-hmm. be, for example, and you see this a lot with entrepreneurs, they don't want to tell you their business plan because they're <laughs> afraid somebody's going to steal it. And I always say to them, listen, building any business that's worth building takes five, ten years. And so the idea, the notion that somebody's going to spend the next ten years of their life pursuing your dream makes no sense at all. It's something that I've continuously had to remind myself of. Um, you know, like Probably a couple of years ago, I had an advisor and, you know, I was kind of getting distracted. I, I tend to get distracted by things. And uh, he, I was talking about a competitor that was launching, and uh, I was kind of in this, this situation. And he said, just focus. And he pulled up a photo. And it was a picture of, I don't know if you've ever seen this photo, but it was uh, Michael Phelps. And it's uh, at the end of a race. And you see him out front, and he's heads down, finishing. And then you see somebody next to him looking, looking at him side. finishing. Yes. That's incredible. If you're busy looking left and right at what everybody's doing, you're not focused on what's right ahead of you. The people that are looking straight ahead and focused on getting the job done and working hard and doing what they know that they're confident about are the ones that win. So I think you just answered the next question, which is, and this is the show about finding the power to choose <laughs> you actually wanted the courage to miss out on the rest. So it sounds like what you're saying is just focus. Uh, focus has produced the best results for, for our business over and over and over again. Um, it's hard sometimes, right? Like things are enticing and people make them look more enticing than they actually are most of the time. That's how right. marketing works. That's right. literally what marketing and sales is. So uh, if you're susceptible to it, great. You're like a normal human being. However, I'm confident that it's the people that can focus and are maniacal in that focus about what they know and what they want are the ones that are successful. Um, you know, over the years, I've just I've had the opportunity to come in contact with great people who've given me pieces of good advice, um, and I've noticed the people that I, the most successful people I've been around, people that are like you know, billionaire heavy hitters, whatever. And listen, this might not be a good thing, but you get in a conversation with them, and they have their whole conversation planned out before you're a part of it, right? Like they know exactly what they're saying and everything. You're just part of their conversation that they're having with themselves. That's like crazy. That's probably like on the, like a spectrum of like way too, too, too focused. But like, that's what it takes sometimes. Like I'm not listening to you in this conversation. I know what my vision is. I know what I want and I'm saying it exactly how I want. It does not matter what your contribution is. I know it and I'm going to get it no matter what. And they practice because people who are successful, for example, entrepreneurs or CEOs, 
they they're kind of like politicians in a way. They totally. tell the same story over and over again. They have their story down and they know how to present themselves in public. So your point is a really interesting one. I never really thought about it that way, but but I, I, I have to agree. If you ever listen to another podcast I've done, I literally just said the same stuff over and over again. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, everybody. Everybody. Uh, the um, I don't know if we're going to air this show after all. We'll just edit together some of your other appearances. Uh, okay, and I have one more question for you. You can't have it all uh, as much as anybody tries. So as you build, Nadam, what are you missing out on? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, I, think I bet they never asked that on the other shows. <laughs> <laughs> never. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've been doing this for, for a long time, and you really have to sacrifice a lot of the things outside of work to be successful, I, I think. And I, and I know other people will say, oh, no, work-life balance. But, like, for me, I had to, I had to sacrifice all of that. Right. Like I don't I see my friends every six months or so. Like I work all the time. That's I, I don't go on a lot of vacations. I, I don't sleep a lot. I, I work. That's the sacrifice I made was I knew that for me personally, I'm not the smartest person in the room. Most of the time I have to work harder than other people to kind of get what I want. And I have to consistently reinforce my focus and what I want all the time if I'm going to get it. So that means, yeah, I don't get to have like a super robust outside life right now. But my feeling is eventually it'll pay off. Matt, uh, thanks a lot for stopping by. If people want to find out more about Nadam and about you, where can they do that? Uh, you can find us at Nadam.co. Uh, that's N-A-A-D-A-M as in Matt, dot co, C-O. Uh, and the video is up there and everything. Check out the video. I guess I plugged the video enough. Pretty but, hard. Uh, but also, go to Mongolia. <laughs> yeah. if, if you're inspired by this and if, if what you see, uh, Nadam is a festival that's done in the summertime in Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think both of us have been to it. It's a fantastic time to go visit the country. It's uh, a little bit of a long flight, but... Uh, the other thing is you can pick up some deals on cashmere while you're there. And, and if you don't go, you <laughs> can always go hell? to nadam.co <laughs> and buy something here. <laughs> I agree. I concur. <laughs> All right, Matt. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. Financial titan Charles Schwab just released its 2019 Modern Wealth Index Survey, an annual examination of how 1,000 Americans think about saving, spending, investing, and wealth. And guess what they found? FOMO is driving your financial decisions. To find out more, I'm joined by Terry Carlson, Executive Vice President and Head of Schwab Investor Services. So break it down for us. How is FOMO affecting our spending habits? Well, you know, it has a lot to do with trying to keep up with the Joneses that has been a part of our American culture for decades. But it really feels like social media and the fear of missing out have increased the pressure to spend. In Schwab's most recent Modern Wealth Survey, about a third of Americans admit that their spending habits have been influenced by what their friends are posting on social media. And of that, 35% are confessing that they're spending more than they can afford to avoid missing out on the fun things that they seem to think their friends are doing. And 60% say they're at a loss to understand how their friends afford such expensive vacations and trendy restaurants that they show on social media. Yeah, I I, I think I've fallen victim to that. And a fun fact for you, uh, Terry, is that 
Keeping Up the Joneses actually was a comic strip uh, that started in the early 1900s about a guy named Aloysius McGinnis. So I'm actually related to the to that in some way or another, at least by my last name. Well, is that how you came up with the information to invent FOMO? No, but it's it just tells me the universe is working in a magical way. Uh, <laughs> so, so based on what you said, it's interesting. I, I I'm curious if you found any correlation between age of of the people that you that you surveyed, whether millennials or Gen Z, were suffering more from this type of of, of spending habit. Yeah, absolutely. We we have found that seventy percent of Generation Z and millennials are feeling more pressure uh, based on FOMO or the social media. And so it's something, you know, as they're thinking about their careers and their spending habits, something they need to be much more aware of to avoid overspending. Well, the good thing is you're here today to tell us what to do about it. Obviously, Schwab manages money for lots of people. You know your clients well. And um, and I would love to know, do you have any advice for our listeners uh, with regards to how to avoid this temptation? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that spending, it's it's not the enemy, but when we allow the social pressure or other forces to lure us into spending beyond our means, it can really start to impact long-term financial stability and really takes away from, I think, individuals' peace of mind. And the most important thing I'd want our listeners to know that it's about balancing spending and saving so that we can enjoy life today but still achieve long-term security. And I, for one, as a certified financial planner, believe that everyone should try to have a written financial plan because it can be extremely helpful in understanding the balance that's needed between spending and saving overall. Very sage advice. Uh, Terry Carlson, thanks for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you. FOMO. If you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, or if you have a question or comment, reach out to me at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. Also, you can take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO dash quiz and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents FOMO. Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded FOMO. in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz to find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. FOMO.